Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Now, on any given Sunday um, in the room when I'm preaching, there could be as many as 10 and some weeks, 25% of the people are daydreaming or sleeping, and I see it all. It's impossible not to see it, Um, and I don't take it personally. Trust me, I really mean that. But today, if this is the time of the service where you prepare and set the table for your daydreams and your snoozing, I'm going to ask you not to do that today. Today, I'm going to ask you to engage as fully as you can. Because some sermons intend to reveal something to you about God and help you grow in your faith. But this morning, I believe that eternity is at stake for some of you. And that burdens me. And it should burden you. Because church is not about becoming a better person or having a better life. It's about having the right response to the Savior, apart from whom there is no hope for us. And we are dying spiritually. And we are facing an eternity without the love of God. And that to me is not some trivial thing. And if you fall asleep on what I say every other week of the year, go for it. But today, I'm going to ask you to fight as hard as you can to track with what is being said. And to give God the opportunity for just Pastor Frank said, we're not about time, we're about God, so if it takes an hour, so be it. If it takes 20 minutes, so be it. But I'm going to ask you to give God the next 30 minutes or so. Just fight for your own soul and give him a chance to speak to you wherever you are spiritually. This is a message that probably most of you in this room could take a stab at because it's based on a verse that is so familiar. And I want to look at the whole passage of that context of John 3.16. Title the message, again, because I am so uncreative in naming messages, is For God So Loved the World. I, I think that's actually a very, very good title for this message. We're going to look at John three sixteen to 21, and here's what the Word of God says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. John 3.16 is arguably the most famous and familiar Bible verse in all of history. In all of the Bible. This is a little screenshot of the moment when the San Francisco Giants won the World Series in 2012. And you can see prominently in the background a very familiar scene in American culture. Somewhere seated in the stands at a sporting event is a person either in a rainbow wig or some outrageous costume holding up a bright, visible sign. And all it says is John 3.16. And then, you know, you might think the average American go, who's John and what's happening at 3.16? But the truth is, no one's that confused. 
Because even if you don't know much about the Bible, even if you have no clue what the words of that verse are, the reference at least is a cultural fixture. Everyone has heard at least the reference, John 3.16. And I think the reason it's so well known and and the reason so many people have, when they only have one shot, one image, one second to communicate something to the lost... They choose John 3.16 because if you read the verse and you unpack it, it is one of the clearest, most concise presentations of what God offers us through Jesus Christ. We make church and Christianity about so many other things, but it is simply the gospel. That is what everything is built on, and John 3.16 gives us one of the clearest, most simply stated presentations of the basic promise and offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to unpack that verse with you and interact a little bit with the context of that verse. And I want to move phrase by phrase because I think it's important that you take this familiar verse and understand it for what God is really saying to us. It begins with the words, for God so loved. And I've been thinking a lot about the love of God because I've come to realize in preparing for this sermon how numb I'd become to the love of God. That phrase, there have been moments in my life where it led me to tears when I thought about the love of God. And I suspect that's true for a lot of you as well. That at some point in your life, you felt really close to God and his love for you overwhelmed you and you felt it deep down in your gut. I've had those moments. But if I had to be honest, I'll tell you that as I prepared the sermon, I realized how cold my own heart has grown regarding God's love. I read and went, okay, he loves us. Yeah. I've heard it a thousand times. But as I just marinated in this passage, it began to open up for me. And one of the places I started was this. If John 3.16 begins with the love of God the Father for me, maybe the place where I can start to understand it is my own father's heart for my kids. And I think parental love is a mystery. It makes very little sense, I'll tell you, especially when your children are babies. As they get older, this becomes less true. But I'm going to tell you right now, babies do jack squat to earn our love. Other than popping out of the right birth canal, what have they done to make us love them? Do they contribute financially to the family? Do they help out around the house? Have they done anything other than occasionally be cute to justify or earn or deserve the lavish love that most healthy mothers and fathers pour into the lives of their kids? I've been thinking about that because when children are babies, you just look at them and go, you are nothing but cost, sacrifice, burden, inconvenience, and yet, and I'll tell you right now, if you're a kid, you're probably getting a little upset. Like, hey, we're more than that. Yes, you are. I'll get to that in a second. But someday, I hope years later, when you're happily married and in the committed covenant relationship, you will have kids and you will realize, why do people do this? And who's dumb enough to do it more than once? We did it four times. We're that stupid. But if you reduce a child simply to how hard it is to keep them alive, you will question why anyone loves a child. Yet if you ask a parent, what they'll tell you is, my heart delights in that child. In fact, the love I feel for that child bursts out of me. I can't explain it. I can't suppress it. Now that my kids are older, I'm lavishing some of that delight on your babies. I can't explain it, but there's something mystical about parental love, and it's not based on what the child has done to earn it, because the answer is they've done zero to earn it, yet we can't help ourselves. We love our children so much that if it came down to it, We would lay down our actual lives for you. I think about all four of my children, each one so different, each one so precious. 
I obsessively look at old videos of their childhood. And I think to myself, if it ever came down to it, there would not be a moment of hesitation. I would lay down my life for my children. And they would never earn that, but it would be my choice because as a father, I cannot help but love them with everything that is in me. And that simple dynamic began to help me understand what this phrase means, the love of God. God loves us, and we cannot find the reason or explanation for that love in anything we've done or anything we fail to do. He doesn't love us because you serve him. He doesn't love you because you've given to him or because you've done anything else to get on his good side. He loves you because you're his. He made you. He has a plan for you. When he was fashioning you in your mother's womb, he delighted over you even then. He chooses to love us. And look what 1 John 4, 16, this is something that John wrote. Oh, did I not put it in? There we go. This is something that John wrote many years later in his life. He said, we know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. Listen to what he says. God is love. And all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. Most of us show love. We give love. But what John says after a lifetime of pondering the love of God is, God doesn't just give love or show love. He is in his very essence what love is. Everything about God says this is what it means to love. If you say to another human being, I love you, you cannot fully understand your own words apart from the heart and character and conduct of God because God is love. Apart from the love of God, every claim we make to love has no real meaning. It's a shadow of the real thing. To really love and to understand love, we have to look at God who invented love, embodies love. He is love. The love of God is the driving force of the gospel. He didn't do it because of any other motive. At the heart of everything that God did for us, his love for us is what explains it. And I want to speak just for a second to the teenagers in this room, because we do a really bad job most days as parents of helping you understand and accept and receive this. You may not believe me when I say this, teenagers, but everything we do for you, even when we're sloppy about it, is because we love you. We're broken, messed up people. We had a story long before you were born. We were once teenagers too. Idiots, most of us. Stumbling through life trying to figure it out. But when we had you, we fell in love. And everything we do, the nagging, the worrying, the pushing, the saying no and the saying yes, all of it is because we love you. And everything God does for us is driven by the same thing. God does not do a single thing in our lives except because he loves us. And John goes on to expand. He's now talked about how central love is to everything God does. Now he begins to speak to the expansiveness or the inclusiveness of the love of God. He said that God so loved everybody. The whole world. Now that's not universalism. It doesn't say that everyone will be saved. But it says this. There is not a human being on earth whom God does not love. And every human being who is lost to God breaks his heart. He loves the whole world. Another way of saying this is that God is not some local deity. He's not the tribal God of Israel, one nationality, one people group. He is the God of everyone, and his heart of love is for everyone. I know those may be familiar words and ideas for you, but I want you to pause and think about this because... 
I think most of us would say, well, I, most, not all. Most of us say, I'm a fairly loving person. I do loving things. In fact, some of us are militant in saying, nobody else seems to know what love is. I know what love is. Here's what it means to love people. We even, some of us, lecture other people on what the nature of real love is. You don't know what love is. This is what love. But listen, we will never love like God loves. Some of us even call the love of God into question. How could God be loving? Stop it. You cannot critique the love of God because you will never love as expansively and as inclusively as God loves. The love of God should, by its very nature, humble and pierce our hearts because as much as we love others, he loves more. When he says he loves the whole world, already in that simple statement, he has exceeded every expression of human love that has ever existed. Think about it this way. There are people you find it easy to love. But be honest. There are people you will probably never find it easy to love in your whole life. Not because they are criminals or they've done anything personal against you, but let's start even at this simple thing. They just believe differently than you do about things. I've watched arguments in America. I've been involved in them, and we are in a very divided nation. We're more polarized than we've ever been, and it's because we believe that if you look at reality differently, if you have different convictions, you're a piece of garbage. Think about the people who have a different view from you on gun violence and the right to bear arms. You want to talk about a hot issue? In our church, there are people who can't get enough guns in their house. And there are people who think if you own a gun or are not in support of gun control, you could not possibly be a Christian. And I want you to pause for a moment and think, whether you're on one extreme of that issue or not, how you feel about the other side. You might be civil, but do you love those people? Think about the people in this world who have radically different views from you on gender, on sexuality, on the definition of marriage, on what the bare minimum justifiable rights of every human being are. And think about the people who think radically differently than you. In your heart, how do you feel about those who hold to those other views as strongly as you hold to your own? Not the people who are ready to be convinced, but the people who are trying to convince you. I'm not making a statement about which side of any debate I fall on. I'm just questioning, do you really know what love is? Everybody loves their friends. Only God loves his enemies. How do you feel about immigration? Race? I can name a thousand issues, and we could divide this room in half. We've already divided our nation in half. And the people on opposite sides of any of these issues, if we're really being honest, I barely tolerate you. I will Observe and acknowledge your rights as a citizen, but you are a piece of garbage. I don't know that I could ever say I love what you stand for and who you are. Now, that's an extreme view. Some of you are like, I'm much more moderate than that. God bless you. Fight the good fight. (laughs) But I'm pretty convinced, most of us, there are some people we'll never love. We're just sick of them. Some of us are really honest about it. I really appreciate the honest people. At least you know where you stand. Like, I don't like you. I'm never going to like you. Get away from me. Okay, then. And how about the people we universally don't like? Like, if you said, I'm a big fan of these people, people would shun you. Pedophiles. Who's a big fan of pedophiles? Anybody? Serial killers? The KKK? ISIS? Anyone? There are groups that it's okay to hate because they're jerks. Everything they do is evil. 
And yet, here's the miracle of the love of God. Is he looks at that vile, evil person. He says, I love them too. And I don't understand that. I don't know if you understand it either. This is why monks could go into the desert and spend 30 years talking to no other human being and still say at the end of those 30 years, the love of God is still a mystery. It's so great, so vast. Who can understand this love of God? God loves those we find it impossible to love. And that's a big statement because sometimes we feel like we're the one that is impossible to love. Jesus extends an invitation to us, and John says it so clearly in this verse. Whoever believes can have eternal life. That offer is made without prejudice. It's indiscriminate in its offering. Nothing is required but belief. John goes on to speak to the depth of this love when he says, For God so loved the world, and he explains what that means, he gave his one and only son. I don't know if you've said I love you to people in your life. I imagine most of us have said it. In fact, some of us say mechanically, I love you, I love you too. It's like an echo. You just say it and it's going to say it right back to you. We say it out of habit, but do you realize how powerful and costly those words really are? And later on in this gospel, John will give us a picture through the words of Jesus. Here's what Jesus says is the gold standard of love. Love is not a bunch of noise. It's not compassion. It's not feeling sorry for people. At the end of the day, love is most visible in sacrifice. That's the nature of it. He says there's no greater expression of love than to voluntarily lay down your life for the sake of someone else that you love. That's how you know what love is. And even if you don't lose your breath, your actual pulse, your heartbeat, there are many ways you can lay down your life, put yourself last and someone else first. That's the nature of love. It's visible in sacrifice. And the greatest expression of the love of God is not that he gave you certain parents or he gave you a certain income level or a good brain. I thank God all the time I was born male because I see some of the things women have to go through and I say, I know this is so sexist, but God, I'm so glad. I couldn't bear what women go through. They're so much stronger. I, I would seriously not make it as a girl. Men, if you think we're stronger than women, good Lord. You might be able to take them in a fight, but that's where it ends. You are weaker than women in the places it counts. And so you may be thankful for a lot of things. Say, God, you showed your love to me in this. I was born a man. I was born Korean or I was born in America or whatever. The greatest expression of the love of God for you can be seen nowhere else than the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, I told you this week, I've been thinking a lot about the parental love relationship with kids. And when you're a baby, you really have no relationship with your parents. You're really just a giant, inconvenient pet. That's really what a baby is, okay? Let's face it. They're cute, but really inconvenient pet. But as kids grow older, you start to have a relationship. And we start to express our feelings, and there becomes this, these occasions for real intimacy or real conflict. There's no teenager who's neutral in what they feel about their parents. Either on any given day, they totally love their parents or they totally hate their parents. I remember being a teenager. I'd never had it in between. I was like, I love you, mom and dad. I hate you so much. Why are you so annoying? It was either, ah, or, oh, right? And here's, as I was pondering this, here's the nature of how a teenager measures the love of their mother or father. I realized it's not based on the thousands 
of significant, profound acts of sacrifice that have gone to keep you alive. It's what you've done for them lately, what you've said lately, what you've denied them, scolded them about, challenged them on. A teenager's view of mom and dad is based on the last five hours. And you are tried and convicted and sentenced and imprisoned based on the last thing you've done. I'm not here to pick on teenagers. I'm saying I was one too. That's exactly how I treated my parents. Then I became one and God stabbed me in the heart with a truth dagger and said, do you realize what parents do? And I kept thinking about this because I think we mostly go to God and there are some of us who legitimately are struggling to know and experience and understand the love of God. I've had these conversations with you. What does that even mean that God loves us? And I think part of the reason you're confused about it and frustrated about it is because you're looking in every place but the right place to understand the answer to that question. When you want to know what it means that God loves us and you start looking at the circumstances of your life, you will become very confused. If God loves me, then why am I still single? If God loves me, why am I having such a hard time conceiving? If God loves me, why am I stuck in this garbage job? If God loves me, why do I look like this? If God loves me, why can't I conquer this challenge which has plagued me for so many years? If God loves me, why am I married to this person? There are so many wrong places to look to understand and measure whether God loves you or not. And if you look at the circumstances of your life, the love of God will seem like a very fickle thing. You'll get whiplash of the soul. The only place to look to really understand the love of God is that he gave his one and only son for you. That's where you understand the love of God. What else could he possibly do beyond that to show you what you mean to him? If someone were dying and I sacrificed my child to harvest their organs and gave that person life and they said, great, what else you got? How could I possibly have a relationship with that person? How could I possibly ever expect that they would know what I've done for them because my giving up my child was not enough? Do you really think that you will understand the love of God by looking at the ups and downs of your life? God does show up in those places. But you will not have the right relationship with God unless you begin at the cross. Because that's the place where everything starts to make sense. See, God loves me is never a question. There are certain unassailable truths that are like the floor under us or like the force of gravity. You start to question those things and everything is up for grabs. In faith, we accept as truth this simple statement, God loves us, and we look to the cross, and he offers us solid proof, an amazing demonstration of that love. He says, this is how you'll know these words are true. God loves you. And from there, every other circumstance is interpreted. God loves me, and yet I'm going through this trial. What could that mean? God loves me, and yet what I long for I do not have. What could this mean? It is at the cross of Jesus that we establish once and for all this simple truth. When you come to God, you come to someone who loves you. And John says that this God who so loved us that he gave us his only son, this incredible expression of his love on the cross, He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. A couple verses before John 3.16, in John 3.14-15, we didn't actually touch on this last Sunday. Jesus references a very important incident in the history of Israel. Here's what happened in that incident. You know the history of Israel, I hope. If you don't, let me give you the Cliffs Notes version. 
They groaned under harsh slavery in Egypt for over four centuries. And as they cried out to God, God had mercy and he delivered them from slavery. In this country, we should understand the weight of what that means. That people are set free from slavery. That is exactly what justice and righteousness should look like. And God did that for an entire nation. And then when the Egyptians had a change of heart and said, we just let all our free labor go, and they took half our gold with them, let's get them. They chased them, and God allowed Israel to pass safely through an ocean, and he closed the waters up over the pursuing army. God had done so many things to demonstrate his heart for Israel. He brought them to the edge of the promised land and said, you see how good this land is. And the spies came back and said, oh, Lord, it's a good land. And I don't know if it was exaggeration, but they said the grapes are so big, it takes two giant men with a pole just to carry the clusters of grapes. That's how rich this land is. It's as if someone told you there's a land where money literally grows on trees and bushes. How would that be? You go out to your backyard. I do yard work all day if money grew on trees and bushes. And that's the land they had, but they said the people who live there now, they're huge. It's like when I was in college and a bunch of us Asians would go to the gym, and there'd be a bunch of not Asians. They say, You guys want to play some pickup ball? And we we're like, um, it's all right, we'll we'll get next. You look at these guys, and there's no way. There's just no way we can handle these guys. And they did not believe that God could deliver them. They had a fear. That was rooted in a lack of faith. And said, you know what? We'll pass. There's no way we could take this land. And God said, if that's how you feel, you won't have it. A generation of you will wander in the wilderness. It will be a hard life for you. I invited you to a good life, and all you needed was faith. But you chose not to have it. And in that wilderness, in the wandering that was deserved, that's the nature of a wilderness. It's not like there's 7-Elevens and Culver's On every corner, it's hard to eat. And when the people got hungry and they grumbled, what did God do? He didn't say to them, hey, you didn't do your homework. Of course you're going to get a bad grade. He didn't scold them. He said, these are my kids. They're idiots, but they're hungry idiots. I got to feed them. Because that's what you do when you're a father and you love your kids, is even if their pain is self-inflicted, you don't ever stop being a parent. And he loved them. He'd even make them work for it. He said, you're hungry, you're grumbling, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he literally sent food raining down from the sky. It was called manna. It was a flaky white substance. When I get to heaven, the first thing I'm going to eat is a manna cake, because I've been curious all my life, what on earth is manna? can't wait to eat one. I hope they sell it in the food court. I'm sure they'll be like a manna king, something. But here's what happens. Has your mom ever made the same dish in such quantity that you asked every day, what's for dinner? Same thing yesterday. I'm going to eat it up. (laughs) And that's basically the entire nation of Israel. (laughs) Manna! It was good the first couple of times, but there's so only so much you could do with manna, and they grumbled again. And at some point, and I'm just going to give you this little tidbit of wisdom. This is going to save some of you. You can push parents only so far. At some point, that smile, that patience, that I'm not going to hit you, I'm not going to hurt you, and all that. But you push parents to a point, and you become that ungrateful. At some point, they go, you know what? Okay, fine. Here's how it's going to be for you. You're not going to like that moment. You're going to realize, oh, I've miscalculated something. I've made a terrible mistake. I pushed and I pushed, and then I done pushed over the line. And God just said, look, that's enough. You're in this wilderness when you could have been in the promise. I set up everything for you time and time again. I was relentlessly faithful. You were relentlessly rebellious and would not believe. And when I respond to your need with yet more grace, all you've got is more complaining. At some point, I'm going to tell you right now, you can push God to the point where he says, it is no longer good for you to receive mercy from me. It is now time for you to be awakened through judgment. 
Only a monster of a parent blesses and rewards a child regardless of their conduct. That's not niceness. That's not love. That's weakness and hatred towards your child. And at some point, God said, enough. If I let this pass, there will be no people left. And so he sends a plague of snakes into the camp. And these are not gartered snakes. They they are poisonous snakes. And as they bite the people, they're fatal bites. And the people are groaning. And once again, as people always will do, they cry out to God only when the poop hits the fan. We ought to learn to cry out to God just to cry out to God. But we usually cry out in distress. And they cried out. And again, the father heart of God kicked in. And he saw these people. Oh, crap, it hurts. I'm dying. I'm dying. And they might even say things like, this is too much. The punishment is disproportionate to the crime. Once again, not looking at their own culpability, but calling into question the justice and righteousness of God. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. And you cannot come to know and understand God from a place of pride. You can only come to know and understand God from a place of humility and brokenness. But as the people groaned under the the plague of serpents, and they were dying literally in the camp, God relented. And what did he do? He told Moses, make a bronze serpent Affix it to a pole and raise the pole up high above the camp. And you tell the people, if you've been bitten and you are dying already, there is salvation for you. Here's what you have to do. And they didn't have to go out to the far distant mountains and find a certain berry and make a salve and rub it in. They didn't have to do anything. All they had to do was look at the serpent raised up on a pole. And believe and trust what God said is true, that if you are dying and you look at this and trust me to save you, you will live in spite of the bite. So that's what Moses did. And it foreshadowed, and Jesus is using this illustration to say, soon I also will be lifted up on a pole. And if you are perishing, there is salvation for you. And you don't have to go to a distant mountain and do a hundred things to erase the bad that you've done. All you have to do is look upon the Son of God hanging on a cross and believe with your whole heart, with the response of the rest of your life, that that is enough to make me righteous in the sight of God. It erases everything I've done. It makes me acceptable to God here and now. Just as the serpent was lifted up and anyone who looked in faith could live though they were dying. Here's the truth. And it's not popular to say things like this today in the church. Thank God I'm 50 and I really don't care about being popular. I don't think I was ever popular, but if I was, I just lost it. Because, listen, some of you are perishing. You're perishing spiritually You're really healthy, beautiful, comfortable. You're doing very well financially, and you're perishing. And I don't say that as a human being to judge you or condemn you. I say that as someone who has read the truth, like like a doctor reading your CAT scans and saying, you might want to sit down. Because as hard as it is to hear, the most loving thing you can tell people who are perishing is you are perishing. You're not just uncommitted, undisciplined, unfocused, naughty, unreliable, whatever other adjective people want to give you to say they're not pleased with you. None of those things are really your problem. They're all symptoms of the fact that right now, if you are not in Christ, you are perishing. That's the opposite of eternal life. It is that you are dying in your spirit. And your earthly life may be padded in comfort. It may be gilded with gold. But you will come to a point where this life will be finished. And you will look back and realize how empty the whole journey really was. And how unknown the beyond is for you. 
What you decide about Jesus isn't just about your morals or your lifestyle or where you spend the first couple hours of your Sunday morning. That is not what this is about. Your response to Jesus is about real life now and about where you will spend your eternity, where you stand in relation to God, and whether you will live forever in your soul or whether you will die forever in your soul. That is the stakes. And if that is where you are, someone in love has to tell you, and let me be that bearer of this hard news. If you are not in Christ and have not trusted him, you are perishing, but there is hope for you. And you don't have to work for it. You can't lose the salvation because you've done some naughty things, but you can't gain it by doing 50 good things for every bad thing you've done. Later in this passage, look what Jesus says. He, he gives this interplay between light and dark. It's such a common theme in the Gospel of John. It's a beautiful theme in artwork as well. If you're an artist, there is so much you can do with this very central concept of light and dark. Here's the verdict. Light came into the world through Jesus Christ. In John 1, he said, he is the light. But people loved darkness. And they didn't love darkness because they love evil deeds. They loved darkness because it allowed them to hide in their evil deeds. They feared the light because it exposed what they'd done. The folly of that is that in the end, look at verse 21, everything we ever did was always done plainly in the sight of God. There's no such thing as hiddenness. I remember really hating my youth pastor when he taught me this. He's like, hey, you know, and my youth pastor is a crazy guy. He's crazy intense. He goes, hey, you know like when your parents are gone, huh? and you close the door, you lock it. And you go under your dad's mattress and you get that magazine and you don't even know what that is. And you're doing naughty things or you're smoking, you're drinking. And some of the kids are taking liquor out of their parents' liquor cabinet and then replacing it with water. And all these things. You know when you're doing all those things and you're getting away with it and no one sees you? God is always watching. And he wasn't saying it like, you are, but he's saying, look, you think you're hiding, but there's really no such thing as hiding. For an omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent God who is everywhere, can do all things, and knows all things, it is foolishness to imagine you could ever hide from him. And yet, what Jesus does is he brings the piercing light of truth and exposes the darkness in our lives for a reason. Not to embarrass, not to condemn, but to show you this is not what's going to lead you to life. You need to know the truth about yourself so that you realize there's hope for you. You are perishing, but you can live forever. There are two responses to the light when it shines on the darkness in your life. One response is to hide from it, to run from the light, to scurry back into the darkness and say, nope, nope, I don't want to be shown and exposed and revealed. Much like when someone tells you, hey, did you know that I put this little... Uh, app on your computer a while ago, and I, I've been watching everything you've done for the last month. It's been so interesting. You're like, what? That would not be a good day for you, would it? Oh, you know, we put some, when we stayed as a guest in your home, we put little um, pinpoint cameras all over your house. It's been so much fun for our family watching your family. What? <laughs> but it's like that. You find out that all along, what you've done in secret has been known. The light is shining, and some people, their immediate response is to run from that light. And they take the path of cover-up, denial, unrepentance. Today we see leaders in our country doing that right now. They've been exposed, caught red-handed to the bitter end. Nope, not me. Didn't do it. Not going to admit to it. They could have such an outpouring of forgiveness, compassion, restoration. Instead, they say, I fear the exposure. My reputation means more to me than my restoration. And they take that pathway and they perish in it. But others see the light and they surrender. This is who I am. I'm not proud of it. It's ugly. I don't even like looking at it. 
Doesn't everyone have a photo of themselves that they can't stand to look at? I haven't listened to a single one of my sermons on audio in 20 years. I can't stand the sound of my own voice. But some people just surrender to the light and say, this is the truth about me. And instead of taking the position of cover-up and denial and unrepentance, they take the path of confession and acceptance and repentance. And here's a remarkable thing. There is no difference in guilt between those two groups. They're both vile and stained. But some pretend they're not, and others surrender to the light. I imagine the camp that day, as the snakes were going through, there was some tough guy who was like, I'm not going to look at that stupid snake. I'm fine. It's just a little snake bite. He's dead. He's going to be a tough guy to the end. No, I'm not going to look at that stupid bronze snake. How could that possibly work? I'm going to walk over to the doctor's tent first. (laughs) And he'd probably make it halfway there, and he'd croak because he decided he's not going to own it. He's going to fight it. It's not good news to hear you're perishing, but it's really good news to hear you don't have to perish. That's what I want to hear from the doctor. I never want to hear I have bad news and more bad news. I want to hear I have bad news and good news. Bad news is you're sick. The good news is we have a cure. You need both because they're both true. Let me wrap up here this way. The reason some people run towards God when the light shines and some people run away has nothing to do with how they look at themselves. None of us have any illusions about how bad we really are. Do you really need someone else to tell you you're not perfect, you've done some really reprehensible things? If everything you did in private were shown in public, you'd be kind of horrified. How many of you need someone else to tell you you're not like the greatest human being on earth. See, I know what I've done and what I think and what I'm capable of, and I think it's a miracle I'm allowed to preach here. And you guys actually stay to the end. That's a miracle to me. We don't need other people to convince us that there is very little that is good in us deep down. We're aware of the bad that we have. We will respond to the light by either running to God or away from God based on what we think about him, not what we think about ourselves. I don't think anybody exposed to the light says, no, I'm not that bad. They say, no, I can't afford to stay in the light because I don't trust anybody right now. You know, when teenagers get in really big trouble after they've done something bad, I mean, not just like a bad grade, but like something really bad. And I've, I've talked to people who ran away from home in their teens and never went back. They're like in their 30s now. I've talked to people like this. In that pivotal moment when something horrible happened and they had a decision, a fork in the road, they said, should I tell my parents I'm freaking out right now, I need help? Or should I run away from home and run from this problem and this trouble for the rest of my life? And I've talked to people who made that choice. They've run from it. And the parents looked for them for years. Wept because they would have helped. But their, their kids didn't trust them. You will either run away from God or run to God in your sin and perishing based on what you believe about God. That's why we can talk all day long about John 3.16, but we should never, ever separate it from John 3.17. In fact, I want a new ministry where I take a spray pa- can of spray paint and everywhere I see John 3.16, I want to walk and go, dash 17. Don't leave out the good stuff. Don't just hold out the promise of eternal life. Let them know that they can run to the light because they will not find a condemning God. I know that some teens are wise to run away from home because they would have been murdered by their parents. But God will never do that. When you run to God, 
You will never find condemnation. Never. Not once, not for a second, not even in joking. He will never, ever condemn you. He knows everything you've done, even the stuff you can't admit to for yourself. And he says, if you will own it and just come towards me and not away, you don't have to perish with that. You don't have to spend your whole life carrying it by yourself or trying to really store up good deeds to cancel out your bad deeds. I'm reminded of the first stanza of the great hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Listen to these words. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Listen to this line, because I think this is the heart of God. Oh, what peace we often forfeit, and oh, what needless pain we bear. Because we don't really believe we can go to God with it. We believe that if we went to him, he'd condemn us. When instead he says, come to me, you'll find acceptance. When God receives us and saves us, he doesn't erase who we are. He redeems who we are. Your personality will stay largely the same. Rough edges will get smoothed out. He doesn't want to replace you with somebody else. He wants to redeem you because he loves you. He'll accept you just as you are. We don't do this very often at our church, but we're going to do it this morning. If you want to come up, help me out a little here. Um, It's already 11.30. Parents, please uh, buy a box of chocolates for the Seeds teachers next Sunday. Seeds teachers, if you're listening to this, I really, truly am sorry for how late we're going, but here it is. It may be the case that you've come to church for a lot of years. And maybe it's uncomfortable to consider Am I actually born again? Do I have this new birth? Now, some of us, we've just lost our way and we're going through a really hard time. There's great compassion in the heart of God for you. Some of us, we may find that we've been in the house of God but never with the heart of God all our lives. That all this time we've been trying to build this perfect life on earth, it's because we're fleeing with all our might from the truth that we are perishing in our soul. I'm going to ask us, and I'm going to stop talking now. I'm going to ask us to do something. I'm going to ask all of us to close our eyes. And I don't want you to be concerned about what's happening next to you or in front of you. Don't worry about anyone else in this room. And we're not going to take very much longer. Some of you are running out of steam, man. Life is kicking your butt. You're barely hanging on coming to this place every week. It's hard for you to see any meaning in any of this. I want to tell you there's more. So with eyes closed, I want to ask you to make a decision this morning in faith. If you find that you are among those who's never really trusted Jesus to be enough, to have died the death you should die, And to give you the life you could not earn. Some of you want to put that off until maybe later. Until you've grown older. Until you've done more. But if you feel that God is pulling on your heart right now, this is the moment to make that step of faith and that decision. And I'm going to ask you to do that. Even if it's uncomfortable. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you're ready to make that decision and receive the free offer 
of the gift of God for you, I'm going to ask you, while everyone's eyes are closed, to raise your hand and signal to God that you receive it. So I'm going to give you a minute to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to respond. So let's take a minute, and let's just get in front of God quiet. God pulling on your heart this morning but there's another pull on your heart to put this off, to postpone it I've been there before too I'm going to ask you in faith to surrender to the pull of God and not to the pull of doubt no one else is looking at you but I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in faith if you want to receive the free offer the gift of eternal life from Jesus this morning. I'm just going to wait a little bit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Praise God. Praise God. church, something significant happened in this room just now. Over a dozen people in this room have responded to the free gift of Jesus. And I'm going to ask us together, and you can put your hands down, and let's pray for and with each other. More hands keep going up. And God, I thank you. We thank you as a church family for the 20 plus people in this room who felt both the pull of God in their hearts and the pull of doubt. Thank you, Jesus, for winning. It was a huge step of faith. And the journey begins now. And your enemy will want to discourage right away. But you are stronger than your enemy. So now enter into the hearts of each who raise their hand. Protect them the way a father protects his baby. Shelter them until they are stronger. Affirm them in their hearts. Let them know how deeply loved they are. Help them now to experience a change of their inner appetites. No more striving, no more trying, just becoming someone new because you've entered their lives. We praise you, Jesus. And we rejoice together with our brothers and sisters. For those who felt the pull and could not get there this morning. Lord, we pray that you would not give up the chase. You would love them and pursue them relentlessly. We're so grateful that you're a faithful God. Thank you for what you've done here this morning. Seal it by your Holy Spirit. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you're among those who raise your hands, and I, I'm just deeply moved by how many of you raise your hands. 
I'm going to ask you to take a further step of faith later today. Don't wait till tomorrow. I want you to find someone you care about who cares about you, and I want you to share with them what you did today. And when I ask you, just have that person pray for you and continue to encourage you. Don't keep this a secret. And in time, I want to ask you, if you haven't done this, to talk to Pastor Jared about obeying the Lord and being baptized. And you don't have to work your way up to baptism, but it is a glorious, joyful celebration of the dawning of new life. And we will be delighted to have another service this summer and baptize you if that is what you're ready to do. Please share with someone what you did this afternoon, this morning and rejoice together. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.